and the conversation turns to summer travel. I mentioned that I'm going to Israel. The chair of the department, who is a, a nice French woman, looks at me with disapproval. I tell, I tell the table just now, because now I'm getting testy, I'll say, oh yes, I'm a big Zionist. <laughs> to which she um, you know, recoils with visible disgust and uh, kind of an, an indiscernible utterance to match, <coughs> bites her tongue, but had she not bit her tongue, she probably would have said something very unnice. At that same dinner, another senior professor um, colleague introduces me to someone else from another department, I think it was English, and this professor looks at me squarely and says, well, I didn't realize we're still letting Israelis on campus. Of course, I'm stunned by this, but I can't issue a comeback, right? I'm like an adjunct. I'm trying to position myself to get a tenure track position. Um, I'm trying to be nice. Um, and you know, there's really no way to, to kind of fly off the handle at that. Flash forward you know, to my eighth year last year, not one but two tenure track positions come up. Um, but I only find out about them online in an ad. Um, and I can assure you it wasn't because of my teaching, because I always had the highest evaluations in the, uh, in the department. Um, so I'm overlooked, and, um, and I leave. School number three. I'm running out of schools here in the New York area to teach. Um, this one's at Pratt. You know Pratt? Another great art school. Um, the chair of the art education department where I'm teaching jokes to everyone present when he joyfully exclaims at a department meeting, where else can an Israeli and an Iranian get along like this? He's Iranian, of course. Meant to demonstrate the fact that, you know, as a chair, he is a benevolent and tolerant figure, like the king of Persia himself. Um, this, again, is my boss, who can either assign me or not assign me, right, to further teaching. Um, and so one wonders, you know, do you hide the fact that you're from Israel? To get ahead, how do you navigate this? Just to keep your measly little um, adjunct course, which you know sometimes pays as little as twenty-five hundred dollars for the semester. Um, for reasons that are still unclear, I was laid off from that job as well. School number four. This is my last school. Um, I'm teaching art history online at a small college. I never get to meet the students. Um, just outside of Washington D.C. And in the safety of the online environment, of course, a few students take the opportunity to do the usual um, Israel bashing. <clears throat> now, these students are very young, right, like you, but probably unlike you, they, um, they know less, right, um, than you know about the Middle East. And you can tell that they're kind of regurgitating stuff that they've heard. And frankly, it's completely off topic, right? You ask them, I ask them, like, how did the Renaissance uh, aesthetic affect um, the fledgling Baroque art? And they say, well, Israel, you know, <laughs> you just can't get away from it. Right? Um, some art world examples, moving away from academia. I'm like in, involved in the art world in New York. I'm going to um, the New Museum in Soho. It's called the New Museum. Uh, shortly after it opens, and um, on the third floor, there's an installation by a young artist who's envisioning the year 2048, when Israel no longer exists. And I'm told by the didactic panel in the museum that he's not anti-Israel, 
but that he's just exploring political realities. This makes me very mad. And I decide to slip a little note into the museum exhibition. <laughs> now, I'm an artist, and I work at museums, and this is highly illegal. But, um, but I just decided to do it anyway. Come on in. Um, and right, so I love the idea of like when he takes down his installation, he'll find a little note for me. Okay, so then I, after calming down, I go down to the museum bookstore, to the gift store downstairs, where on cue, I'm browsing through the, the, the gift store and I find a stack of prominently displayed DVDs about the terrible Israeli aggression in Gaza. This is in the museum bookstore, like right there with the postcards, the Van Gogh postcards and, you know, and the, the calendars. And mind you, this is about 10 feet away from a plaque where all of the supporters are listed. And let's face it, 90 to 95% of them are Jewish names who are you know, responsible for this, uh, for this uh, Buyers, whoever bought, whoever's buying the merchandise at the gift store, you know, they're responsible for their salaries and their livelihood. I thought of doing a little performance piece where I buy all the CDs and I go out right in front of the museum and I smash them with a hammer. But I never did. <laughs> I never did that. Um, art world incident number two. In the mid 90s, I was sitting on a panel with a very famous artist, very famous, prominent. Uh, American nice Jewish lady. Um, and flash forward, we're now Facebook friends, and her wall, however, is constantly a, you know, ablaze with uh, anti-Israel um, remarks that are constantly liked by her art world groupies and worshipers. So I decide to take them on, and this kind of devolves into a very public a uh, very ugly kind of um, battle on Facebook with like the who's who of the New York art world. Uh, you know, ridiculing me and, um, and uh, reprimanding me for not having the right politics. So, you know, this really affects your, um, your art world career. Where everybody, it seems, is a very politically astute, very ex extremely easily offended, um, you know, postmodern, Left, left, lefty activist. Bless you. Um, now, a few days later, I have to walk by her artwork at the Metropolitan Museum where I'm a tour guide. <laughs> I'm a lowly tour guide, and I have to walk by it, and it's just so humiliating. Which leads me to incident number three. Um, at the Met, Metropolitan Museum, which I'm sure you've all been to, um, the education department is using a map of the Middle East for teaching purposes. Of course, Israel is nowhere to be found. When I'm alone in the office, I take a big fat Sharpie and I write it in. Uh, and it gave me great pleasure, I have to say. Um, but one of the worst incidents in memory at the Met was um, the curators of the Alexander McQueen show. Do you know Alexander McQueen? It was, it was the, the most... Uh, popular show we'd ever had, ever in the history of the Met, including like the, you know, the traveling of the Mona Lisa, etc. Um, for one of the Alexander McQueen video installations, they decide to use a theme from Schindler's List. Um, I'm, this is one of the things that really shocks me because every time I hear the first note of that thing, I fall apart and, and, and 
you know, into tears. I just had this very visceral response to that piece. It's a beautiful piece by John Williams. Um, and I'm thinking, could you not find another piece of music to, 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 to use? One that was not specifically written for the slaughter of six million Jews. And by the way, this was under the um, directorship of a new uh, director, new president of the, of the museum, who, who is British. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it was, the curators decided, but was, you know, I think the president has to, or the director has to put a stamp of approval on it. Um, which, you know, that's another issue I have. Do we not have, uh, out of the 350 million people in the U.S., do we not have anyone to hire as a museum director? But that's, a, that's another issue. Uh, right, and you guys, I could go on and on and on, but I don't want to bore you, and I know that you've probably heard of this, uh, and you've experienced it yourself, the internet, you go on YouTube, you go on the, these sites, and you see the kinds of comments that you get, and you take the temperature of the culture, and it's very, very scary, right? Um, every morning now in New York, I have to listen to the BBC, uh, and now Al Jazeera America. I mean, again, do we not have journalists? Um, what is going on here? The New York Times, right? The, 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 what used to be the, the paper of record um, is now the same as all the others. Um, you know, very anti-Israel, um, very, very unsympathetic, very unfair. My Brooklyn food co-op um, wants to boycott my Israeli hummus. My HSBC ATM machine greets me in Arabic and is laundering uh, money to terrorists. And now, and this is the most up-to-date, my Metropolitan Opera is glorifying terrorism in this production of The Death of Klinghoffer, which opens tonight and which is receiving a very vocal and very vigorous uh, response in the form of a protest tonight at Lincoln Center as we speak. This nice gentleman is actually looking through the Tweety Tweeter um, <laughs> feed, uh, and he's going to update us. Nothing new. Mm -hmm. Nothing new yet. So, you guys, what is going on? You know, um, what's a man to do with all this frustration and alienation? Beyond the bias and the insults, it comes down to also I have to kind of mourn. Uh, the, the loss of an academic career that I thought I was going to have. Um, because I, I'm really largely leaving it. Um, you know, all that camaraderie and collegiality and all of that, you know, that everybody expects to, to have in your chosen field, um, you know, it's not good, it's not meant to have. Um, clearly, I'm not as well. So who am I? <laughs> you know, I'm a second generation Israeli. Both my parents were born in Israel, and they were both, uh, both served in the army. Um, my mother's parents were both Sephardic. Her father and his family banished from Arab lands in the early 20th century. And my mother and family, um, living in Jerusalem for many generations, originally banished from Spain. My father's side is fully Ashkenazi from Poland. His parents leave Poland in 1922, very early on, as idealistic Zionists, and come to this small strip of land, then known by its Roman name, Palestine. Um, my paternal grandmother was one of eight children who um, 
all of whom stayed behind and, and were all uh, murdered in Treblinka. Um, her father, by the way, was a very prominent rabbi in the Bialystok uh, synagogue, who um, on June 27, 1941, was uh, barricaded in that synagogue with at least 1,500 other Jews, and they were all burned alive. I wrote a play about it, and this is the play I want to bring to Montreal. So here they were in sort of now her family's completely gone. Here they were in this new land, drying the swamps, right? Unfortunately, she lost her first two twin daughters to malaria. Then 20 years later, she lost her first son to the War of Independence in 1948. This on top of her father, the rabbi. Uh, unfortunately, my father was then a 14-year-old boy, and unfortunately, more so, he actually had to witness the death of his brother, who was 19. Um, so all this was very traumatic. And then enter me, born in the mid-60s, um, to all of this tragedy, uh, a product of all this tragedy, and all of the subsequent displacement and kind of fragmentation that went on. Leaving Israel, going back to Israel, coming to Canada, I lived in Montreal, going to the US, back to Israel, London um, for a while, back to Israel, etc. And here I am in the diaspora. One of my memories of Montreal, to make this more personal, I was, this is 20 years ago, I was performing in Fiddler on the Roof at the English Language Theater in um, Old Montreal. What, what's it called? Centaur. The Centaur. The Centaur Theater. And um, every night on stage, you know Fiddler? Fiddler, great music. Yes, I was Yenta. You, you were Yenta? <laughs> I was a Yenta. Oh, you were a Yenta. Okay, no, you were I was a Yenta in Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, yes. So not like some super huge production. Right, right. Production. Yeah. yeah. This was at the center, so it was pretty modest, but it was nice. And um, every night on stage, I would find myself crying during the um, Anatevka number. Because, you know, it's always about leaving, and you're always leaving. And then I would cry during the um, sunrise, sunset number. And so it's very difficult to perform, you know, through this cloud of tears. Um, <laughs> it's very distracting. Um, but there you have it. Flash forward 47 years, and here I am. And all of this crap that I'm telling you about, and there's just so much a, a, a guy can take, right? So I decided I'm going to do something about it. But I try not to lash out impulsively. I, I want to do something clever and premeditated. I thought, what do I have control over? What can I do? My gesture is small. I decided that I was going to write a little one-page addendum to my doctoral dissertation. I decided I was going to uh, ask Penn State my uh, degree-granting institution to file it with my manuscript. And I wasn't asking for a big ceremony. I just thought, you know, file it in the middle of the night. I don't care. Just like, put it there for um, the legacy of it. In this statement, I decided I would symbolically disavow the writing of one particular philosopher that, since I had finished my dissertation, I kind of saw what her true colors were. And this is Judith Butler, um, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, she, if you're not familiar with her, she is a professor of, uh, of rhetoric at Berkeley. 
and she is a uh, contemporary philosopher. Some people consider her to be you know, one of the most important living American philosophers today. Um, she's a big hero of academia, but she is violently um, anti-Israel, and um, admittedly by her words, she is pro-Hamas pro and pro-Hezbollah, um, and she is Jewish. Um, and so I thought, okay, you know, I used her words in my dissertation. Um, this is my dissertation. I'm going to disown them. I don't want this. I don't want this scholar anymore in my work because her subsequent positions, I thought, discredited her as a researcher and as a scholar. So, you know, and I've been familiar with, in the last few years, with uh, the movement that she supports, the BDS movement, and I thought, okay, let's, let's be funny, let's be symbolic. I'm going to start my own little movement. Uh, with the writing of this addendum, I'm going to call it RDS. Not BDS, but RDS. And that would stand for retractions and disavowals in scholarship. And I'm encouraging, that's what I thought I would do, I would encourage all scholars to go back to their manuscripts and to extricate um, you know, symbolically, because you don't have to do it if you don't want to, and you know, they don't, won't let you really change the um, dissertation because it's a published thing. Uh, but you could add a little addendum, and, and at least just as a symbolic pushback. Now, I won't read you the whole um, statement, but I can send it to you if you like. I can email it to you, and it, it, and it does exist online if you just kind of Google me. You'll can you read it. some of it? Sure, I'll read some of it. Here's what I say. Something. The country Butler vilifies is the only thriving democracy in the Middle East where someone like her, a woman, a lesbian, a political agitator, would be protected. The people in whose name she purports to speak, however, would oppress, punish, and possibly put her to death for merely who she is. In light of her selective blindness, it could only be surmised that Butler and her cohorts are operating with a special kind of bias, a scapegoating that is familiar to students of history. To those who would distinguish between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, I go on in my addendum. I retort, there is no difference. To be anti-Israel is to be anti-Jewish. Israel is the Jewish state. Of course, the other great irony is that Butler is Jewish, despite the fact that she seems to have she seems to have little to no appreciation of her own people's history and the kind of deep memory and moral responsibility that it entails. Instead, she opts to identify with neo-leftist academics and zealous and sanctimonious um, folks who you know, go around policing global injustices, even things that they don't know about, but with a special and disproportionate animosity towards Israel. Right? Instead of allowing her own persecuted status as a Jewish lesbian to inform a subtle and empathic interpretation, she preemptively apologizes, in my mind, for her own academic success and social acceptance by self-effacingly criticizing her own people. And this is my, you know, playing Freud here. 
Um, but a classic and all too common un unconscious self-hatred that we see from Marx to Hannah Arendt to Noam Chomsky. To appease her colleagues and to ostensibly ensure her status, she performs this kind of self-righteous academic extracurricular activity. And mind you, you know, she's a professor of rhetoric, not, not Middle Eastern um, studies. Unfortunately, Butler, Butler's behavior is symptomatic of what I view, and this time as an Israeli, because I can wear those hats you know, when I want to, um, a false sense of security that some American and maybe some Canadian Jews have, and especially intellectual ones. Now, 70 years removed from the gas chambers of Europe, as though it could never happen again. Of course, Penn State refused. I had some uh, screaming matches on the phone with a thesis office on the library and the, the crazy Armenian chair. Um, so, you know, I don't need them. I decided I'm going to disseminate this widely on my own, on the internet and on email. And, um, and that's what I did. And, um, you know, I'm so glad that they refused me events because what followed was nothing short of amazing. Not only friends and family, but colleagues and, you know, noted figures and other academics and the responses just started pouring in rather immediately. Phyllis Chesler, a noted uh, New York academic and feminist pioneer, wrote a nice piece about me in the Israeli, um, Israel National News. Joshua Lovett, a very respected Columbia journalist in New York, wrote a piece for the Algemeiner. Um, Alan Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz of all people, sends me an email congratulating me for my courage. Um, TLV1, the English language television radio station, calls me and wants to do an interview. I get emails from Australia, from Canada, from, um, from England, from Nigeria, um, Facebook uh, you know, requests and stuff. I start my own Facebook group. RDS on Facebook, you can look it up and join us. Um, and the last call I get was from this lovely guy named Charles Asher Small, who's the head of ISCAP, this organization that sent me here tonight. And he, um, out of the blue, right, he doesn't know me, he says, congratulations. He says, that took a lot of courage. Um, I'd like to meet you, I'd like to work with you. And so we met, and now we're working together, and it's so great. Wow, right? I mean, I really touched a nerve. A lot of people responded to this. And I just quickly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my remarks. I want to tell you about one more person, Abby, uh, a, a young doctoral student at the University of Exeter in England. This poor woman was being forced by her doctoral committee to include just hateful anti-Israel uh, material in her PhD. She was being forced, like she, you cannot pass the oral exams, right? Uh, unless you review this literature that is supposedly, uh, you know, germane to your research, which it was not in her case. And she was like, you know, uh, she didn't know what to do. She was at the end of her wits. And she contacted me, and I put her in touch with these people that I now suddenly had access to, like Phyllis Chesler and Charles Small. And we rallied around her, and we supported her, and we gave her a context, and we gave her a community. And um, you know, she's fighting, and she's fighting with um, with greater, you know, 
tenacity and greater energy. And I'm so, so happy because I was able to help Abby. Right around this time, Judith Butler was invited to give a talk about Kafka at the Jewish Museum in New York. Um, but now I, you know, my, my little one-man movement was like circulating. It happened to be right around the same time in the papers in New York. And um, various community members, some of which sat on the board, you know, started to take on this kind of outrage um, that I had displayed. Um, and we decided to, you know, that it was not appropriate. It was just not appropriate to have this um, figure at the Jewish Museum in New York. And um, she either bowed out or was disinvited, but Judith Butler was not hosted um, the in the following weeks after this all exploded. I heard that what happened was oh, the, somebody had bought up all the tickets. Oh, and please. Her to See, I forgot about that. Tell, tell everyone. No, I just heard that somebody had bought up all the tickets and then called the management and said you either uh, cancel it or uh, she's not going to be speaking to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up canceling it uh -huh. and then said it was of her own volition that she couldn't make it. Or mm -hmm. I love that. And right after that, she, uh, in a joint statement with Khalid Rashidi, prominent Palestinian academic, um, you know, issued this, 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 this statement complaining about them being censored and them being silenced. And then, lo and behold, the most amazing thing happened when I get the following email. Dear Dan Heaney, I'm wondering whether you might be willing to meet for coffee or tea in NYC sometime in April. I'd like a chance to have a conversation with you. I have the sense that we might be able to understand each other better in person. And I would welcome that chance. Signed, Judith Buckman. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, right. Okay, like I am shaking in my boots, right? Like the, the most important like living philosopher is writing me. So what do I do now? And I'm a little afraid of her, right? You know, I mean, like she's in with Hezbollah, Hamas. So I debate, I debate, um, do I meet with her? I ask my family, I ask all my friends, I ask my, the hundred member, uh, uh, members of my new group, right? I want it to be very democratic. I said, should I meet with her? What should I do? And after much debating, and you'll forgive me, um, I decided that not only was I not going to meet with her, but that I wasn't going to respond to the email because I felt that she went beyond the pale by her support for terrorist organizations and um, that the conversation wouldn't go well. And let's face it, she's very brilliant. I was afraid she was going to brainwash me. And I, I just, I, I didn't want to do it. I was being stubborn. I don't know if it was the right decision, but that was the decision I made. And I thought, you know what? Um, I've heard enough from Judith Butler. Um, you know, it's time for her to hear a little bit from me. Um, and that's what happened. And I, 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 I would welcome your responses to that. But I'll finish by saying that um, you must never, ever, this is a cliche, uh, the cliche of cliches, 
But it's true, you must never underestimate the power of one individual. Look what happened, right? Look what I did sitting there alone in my lonely room and with my laptop, writing my little addendum, being all angry and isolated, uh, but deciding to do it. I mean, all you need to do is to just decide to do it. And then you do it, and once it's out there, you throw it out there in the world, and it's out there, and things happen. So, you know, my life has changed because of it. Um, I still have half of one foot in academia, um, just for like some bread and butter um, courses. And, but I'm spending significantly more time with this new kind of acti activism, which in this environment, um, God knows we need, um, because things are getting bad, and um, I have the energy and the willingness to do it. And so here I am doing it. And it's not that unlike a teacher. Um, so here I am before you. And that's the end of my story. <laughs> so, are you aware that Judith Butler is given a degree from the university to oh, sure. From McGill? Yeah, from McGill. Oh, I'm not surprised. I wasn't aware of it, but I'm not surprised. Thank you. Bye, guys. Um, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. How, uh, were you here at the time? I was, I think this was my graduating class. Fortunately, I was in the science, um, the science graduates, so I didn't, I didn't get to hear her. Mm -hmm. um, but all the art students, um, she was basically the speaker. You know, she yeah. spoke there, she got an honorary degree, and she gave the speech, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was from the, from the Jewish community, there was a bit of a divided. There was. Uh, yeah, so there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a massive protest against it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there was like some opposition, I remember, but it wasn't like huge and it didn't really hold any water, like no one really, um, like, it didn't, yeah. it didn't take off. Sure. Yeah. And most people's mind, you know, especially in Canada where everything's so civilized, why would you want to protest an academic? Mm -hmm. um, it seemed, and when, when a day of celebration, it just seems it's not right. Um, the left will do it when it's, because there's a, there's a woman named Margaret Somerville who opposes gay marriage, and she was given an honorary degree at Ryerson, and yeah. the staff and the students turned their back on her, yeah. literally, oh, really? during the oh, ceremony. Yeah. 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 So, we might have to learn a little bit more from gay activism, which is, you take, you know, turns the notch up a little higher with the, uh, yeah, please. Yeah, I, you know, I am, um, I, I moved back to Montreal from New York about 10 years ago. And I, I didn't have a job, and I started just uh, going around and attending things and reading the internet. And since I had time, I attended uh, quite a few um, BDS conferences, anti-Israel apartheid conferences. And I even had an interesting experience where I was working for, I was, I was uh, volunteering with the Concordia, um, Concordia TV program, which is open to all students. Sure. However, when I said, <laughs> there were, at that time, late, um, um, late, anyways, the person who was picked up and uh, 
when Netanyahu came to Concordia, so yeah. you know who he is. Um, he was at that time he heading up this organization, and when he saw me, he said, no, you cannot attend. I, I swear to God, this happened, I wrote about it, you can read about it on my blog. And um, so I'm very, very aware yeah. of everything that's going on. And uh, it's sad. And uh, today, in, um, on the internet, there was a very interesting article on Mosaic, mm. um, which analyzes, you know, it's very hard to put your finger on exactly where is this coming from, who is behind it, mm -hmm. because it's coming from so many different quarters. And what this Mosaic article is saying is that this is becoming like a social movement, like a grassroots social movement. For example, a few years ago when they had the BDS movement here, so the feminist, the feminists were uh, pro-Palestinian. You know, I went to a few things where they, the the uh, female, the feminist department of Concordia was completely pro. Feminist. Now they have a new head of the feminist department, and she's not like that. But at the time, and also, you know, they they claim that the aboriginals are part of this um, movement against uh, Israel. You know, and their claim they, they, their claims are so bizarre and outrageous, and yet they have traction because people. Uh, you know, grassroots individuals, some of them um, fed by latent anti-Semitism, a lot of them not very well educated, and it's a mob mentality yes. that, right? Exactly. It's a mob mentality that we really have to uh, speak up for. And... Um, but it's the it, progressive mob, but they see themselves as the progressive mob. Uh, never mind. No. Uh, I think... Uh, a few years ago, I don't know if you know uh, about CIJR, Canadian Institute for Jewish Research. So uh, that's a Canadian organization. And over the years, they've had several conferences. And I've filmed a lot of them. And I've put a lot of the, place, uh, the, the films on YouTube. And I remember Mr. Gerstenberg, who came a few years ago. And he said that. What? Is it Manfred Gerstenberg? Manfred Gerstenberg, yes. And uh, he gave a very interesting talk, which is on YouTube. And again, he says, even a single person can make a difference. For example, um, he, he pointed out that there was some petition, this was at the time of some one of the wars, um, on behalf of the Palestinians. And one, one professor signed it as uh, Nasrallah. <laughs> In other words, you really have to use humor yeah. and, and ingenuity and to know what you are doing to really speak up. I'll give you another example. Uh, a, few, a few months ago, a man called Sam Vick wrote an editorial in the Gazette. It was actually an opinion piece that uh, claimed that Jews don't have any national interest in Israel, especially Jews from Arabic lands, and a lot of this nonsense. And it turns out that this Sambic went to a Jewish school right here in Montreal. Of course, he doesn't, um, he, 
He doesn't also say that he also wrote for Electronic Antifada and, um, and uh, Tadamon. You can Google his name and you see it right away, but most people don't see that. How does a good little Jewish boy from Jewish school end up doing that? Like, it doesn't yeah, make sense. Where do they lose their way? How do they I know, I know. I was kicked out of a fem I was running the was part of the feminist organization at Yale, so VA, um, and I was running some this, this discussion talk um, about feminist issues. And I started eventually getting involved in the pro-Israel community and um, started, you know, I was part of the um, you know the, the opt-out campaign for Cuba because of their anti-Israel stance. And so um, they immediately told me, you know, you don't have the authority um, to talk about feminist issues because you don't understand oppression clearly, because you don't, you know, you don't sympathize with Palestinian oppression. And they said, like, we want you need someone who has expertise in that area and who will able, be able to academically discern, you know, exactly. and understand the intersectionality that is involved. And so they basically think that they think that they're the whole bubble, like they're in the bubble, they're in this bubble that they think that they're the only people that are that make any sense, and everyone else is just stupid, ignorant, homophobic, sexist, or racist. And so, you know. But, but the, so the Palestinian conflict is central to the feminist. Uh, I was, so they, they, didn't tell, they didn't tell me so that it had anything to do with that. But you see, they systematically excluded her because she didn't agree with their. But they, didn't, they didn't tell me that that was why. But they told me that you're 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 opting you're, you're support of the opt-out campaign. And I literally specifically said that my support is because of the Israel-Palestine issue. You know, because they support like they basically they do Israel part like like they're the people that run it. And I I have a moral issue with, with that. And so they literally were like, yeah, we can't, you know, because you obviously don't understand oppression, and you, you know, et cetera. So they, yeah. They, they're yeah, like, I mean, if you support uh, Israel, right, you are supporting an, an oppressor. You're supporting, and what they see as, in this, in their lingo, it's a, you know, colonialist, kind of imperialist uh, oppressor. You cannot uh, understand uh, feminism by definition, by, by nature. You cannot, um, these two causes are completely irreconcilable, right? You cannot uh, fight oppression on the one hand and be an oppressor on the other. That's yeah. exactly what they like, told me, sort of. Please. Yeah, so I have a question Please. taking it in another direction, maybe. Um, what do you see, do you see a place for politics in academia? Or do you think that it should be uh, something separate? No, no, uh, absolutely. I, I think that you cannot separate politics from any aspect of life, and certainly not from academia. So I'm all for um, for rigorous politicization, and it's you know you can't avoid it uh, of education. You know, um, my dissertation, my doctoral studies was about. Um, you know, critical pedagogy. It's kind of like the reconciliation of education and, and, and activism and, uh, and politics, and so I'm all for it. Um, I'm just, I'm against um, crazy people, you know? Um, so, when we, so we have to find a way to, um, to kind of uh, bring up our politics and to, to be able to cultivate a, uh, a community um, and a sophisticated dialogue uh, that counters it, because you cannot silence people, especially if it's in academia, right? Um, but what we can do is fight back, and we have to attack, and as Ruth um, Weiss says, do you know Ruth Weiss? She's 
fabulous. You have to look her up. She's at Yale. She says, we cannot afford to constantly be put in this position of, uh, of, of, defend, of defender, of defendant. Um, we have to attack back. We have to be more active about it. But I have um, no problem, in essence, obviously, of, of with what you're saying. Right. Um, what do you think about that? My, or yeah. As a follow-up, um, last year, I think I went to a lecture by professors Eric and Gill where they um, they were discussing their their silencing of speaking out against Israel. Um, that um, they're being silenced. That they're being silenced because they feel that whenever they do that, mm -hmm. it's equated with anti-Semitism, and that they they were they were forming their own little community. I went there. I wanted to see what they had to say. Yeah. Um, and they said the academic environment is. Is one where, yeah, when you bring up your political opinions, yeah. then it, it puts your job at stake. Yeah. Um, so just only if they're the wrong opinions. Oh. No, but but here they were saying that even if they have yeah. other opinions, that, like it, it all kind of gets. I may have misunderstood your question. They did a poll of Harvard professors, mm -hmm. and not like less than eight percent were voting Republican. Yeah. Ninety-five percent vote. You know, yeah. the leftist Democratic, and that's true of in, in our schools too. They vote yeah. left wing parties, and of course, of and, course, and most of these left wing parties are anti Israel. They had a large conference in Ottawa about two weeks ago, the large socialist conference, and there were multiple sessions. One of my friends went to see what they were talking about. Various anti Israel things. How how do we get the one state solution for Palestine being Palestine? So, right, right, right. But uh, just to follow up, I didn't, um, you know, when I'm in uh, politics and education, I thought you meant in the classroom, uh, you know, like to talk about it and to incorporate it into. But, um, but yeah, of course, you cannot, um, you know, wear your politics on your sleeve at the cocktail party or at the, uh, you know, faculty committee meeting because, okay. you know, I did and it's academic suicide and, yeah. you know, it's over. Yeah, so. so, but for me, I had nothing else to lose. So I knew that my future was not that I'm gonna, you know, take my PhD and do something else with it. Um, but were you, you weren't necessarily, you know, being, I mean, your your purpose was not to be political, your purpose was to respond to what you perceived Absolutely. was a politicization. I was not trying to be political. That's yeah, right. that's true. And I think that's, that's what, what you were saying was yeah. that, you know, when universities, when, you know, 98 or 92 percent of faculty yeah. are voting one way, I mean, then you're not, not much diversity there. Another thing that I, I noticed about conflating politics with academia is that the thing about academia is doing research, right? So you're, you're finding these um, ev evidence, right? And you're coming to conclusions using this evidence. So technically, you would call it scientific method, although you know that's a very loose term, you know, in the arts a little bit. I mean, sure. Um, so. I find that a lot of academia is like what they think is finding the truth, quote unquote. So because they're so convinced of the truth and because they use this method to come to the truth, you know, they think that they know the truth and if you disagree with them, then you're ignorant and you're denying or you're denying the truth because you have an agenda. You know, so that is the biggest issue. That's what causes all these clashes because they think that they're so you know, knowledgeable, and another the, the, the liberal bias in in academia right now. I think um, it really they, they tried the, the pro Palestinian 
contingent is really capitalizing on that mm. to make it seem like they're the majority on campus. Mm. You know, like they are, like you should, like they're the majority, so you should just jump on the bandwagon because then you're cool. You know, then you're like everyone else and you're like all the cool, in the know, you know, sapient human beings. Yeah you know, at the university. And so that's the problem is that they, they create the illusion, and I know they're doing that at McGill right now, yeah. that, you know, at SMU, that everyone hates Israel. This is a common belief. Everyone everyone, everyone disagrees with Israel. You know, it's, um, it's there's like, a, yeah, there's a vote. Yeah, there's a vote. There's a resolution. It was, it was postponed a couple of times, most recently. So who put that resolution forward? SPHR? Yeah, actually, actually, it's still uh, the solidarity for Palestinian human rights, and it's, it's, it's tabling at it's it's tabling at Gill on Wednesday. Um, so basically, what they're trying to argue, they're literally blaming Israel for the entire conflict. They're like, we condemn Israel for this, we condemn Israel for that, we condemn Israel for this. And they don't mention Palestine, they don't mention they don't mention Hamas. They just mention Israel, 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 Israel. Israel. I think they don't mention the Durban conference. They don't mention or the letter in the Lancet. Yeah, the letter in the Lancet. Richard Horton retracted it when he That's went to right. go visit. Amazing. Yeah, he went to go visit yeah, Roundabout right. and he saw that a quarter of the doctors there are Arab. Yeah. Which was completely contrary to what they published in their letter and he's going to publish in the retraction. Retraction. How many retractions? But before, before that, he said he would never publish a retraction. That's the best part about it. Yeah. The, they also had allegations of the two major writers of it. They found emails from them. About they were Nazis. There were videos like from David Duke about the Zionists controlling the media. And their response was, like, I don't, I don't agree with Israelis and the majority of Jews. The other one said, I thought it was true, so I was scared. These are two like, doctors, educated doctors. Yeah. So two of my colleagues. One's Italian, one I think is Thai. Yeah. You didn't even wait, Doctor Ethan. You didn't read about that? Yeah, yeah. You yeah, I signed the counter letter. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, I read a bunch of it. So yeah. So you know, I think we. Um, I don't know if everybody knows this about how this all came to pass via the Durban conference where the UN. The UN, the first UN Human Rights Conference, decided that Zionism is racism. I mean, how? You, that's the, the core, the, the, and everything since then, you know, it is is uh, is sprung is sprung from there. Yeah, yeah. A lie, which was later retracted, but it doesn't make any difference to the Palestinian support. Just like groups. the Goldstone report, you know, it was retracted, but everyone's citing it for some reason. Yeah. You know, Goldstone. Like, yeah. You know who he Goldstone is a is? Jewish traitor. Yeah. He's a judge from South Africa who was asked to um, to do a report on. Yes, but my point is he's Jewish. Yes, he is Jewish. Yes, he is Jewish. That's not new. That's not new, by the way. Don't look at Hannah Arendt. I mean, Judith Butler is like the contemporary Hannah Arendt. And by the way, Hannah Arendt has been. Although she was a brilliant professor and a brilliant philosopher, she has now been discredited, especially in her views about acting. Totally discredited. So, you know, this is not just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're. Yes. They, they so they I, I would say, honestly, I think the Jew who is anti Israel is like a chicken supporting KFC. 
You know, That's think a about a chicken. Yeah. A, a Jew who is anti-Israel is like a chicken supporting KFC. You know, KFC <laughs> is known for their horrible treatment of chickens. They genetically modify chickens to have like five heads and like three breasts and like all this crazy stuff, and they, they're just notorious views like like of that. chickens. Like like notorious. This gentleman has a yes. please. Yes, so was a comment. When we when we meld, let's say, our academic persuasions with our political persuasions. Be a little bit judicious. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to start with with people like Gardner, Heidegger. A little bit of sensitivity has to be uh, met with an understanding of these people's perspective. They are human, after all, subject to to the frailties, and one of those frailties, unfortunately, happens to be self-promotion and propagation of the of their ideals. Heidegger and Gadamer would not have been as successful as they are today had they condemned the, uh, the, the, uh, the Nazi regime. And we see the same thing happening with Bertrand Russell many years later. Today we see Alan Badu doing uh, the same thing, using political pretexts, which are not necessarily uh, woven into the tapestry of their intellectual beliefs, manifesting themselves as, as a mechanism for promoting their status. <coughs> These individuals arrive at their conclusions through liberal tendencies rather than liberal thinking. And I'd like to differentiate between the two. Liberal thinking is a process which entertains a wide spectrum of viewpoints with the, with the purpose of, of reaching uh, a beneficial conclusion, one that, one that is as close to the truth that there is no ability to establish the truth, but we can try to approximate as much as possible. A liberal tendency is a tendency to try to equilibrate society by bringing those who are on the high ground, who those in power, down and bringing the weak and the underprivileged uh, up in society, and, and that's exactly the case we have here in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. That's what you call a liberal tendency. A liberal tendency, yes. Supporting the underdog blindly, no matter exactly, what. Exactly, exactly. You know, I'm just going to take a poll right now. How many people here, uh, let's say 15 years ago, I'm not sure, but those who, those who did, supported the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army? But I don't know if it's a socialist impulse or a genocidal impulse. You seem to be saying it's like a socialist impulse, but yes. it's very much a genocidal impulse. It's not an equilibration. Yes, those who are, let's say, underprivileged in society are usually supported by the liberal. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Those, yeah. Sorry. You disagree yeah. with that perspective? No, I, I disagree with the application to this particular situation. To the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Was it not a similar situation in. in the case of the KLA, where of course that one was really got out of control, but there was exacerbation. We have to understand that it would not have reached it would not have reached its crescendo. I don't think a lot of people know what the KLA was. I see. Well, it was a terrorist organization. It was a terrorist organization that was actually buffeted, funded through terrorist organization uh, through a, a terrorist means, meaning through drug running and other just like. Just like uh, Hezbollah, in order to displace uh, 
sovereign power from, from particular territory. There was even talk of a great Albania at the time. And of course, of course, the, the liberal media painted that. I don't know whether we consider BBC to be liberal or conservative. It's not conservative. I, I consider... I, I think we actually both. conservative? That's like... No. Well... <laughs> it depends. I see your distinction, though. It's very, very uh, it, it, it's, it, instrumental. Um, did you, what were you going to say to that? I think that's a very, I think your distinction is very valid. Yeah. You know, liberal thought is one thing, mm -hmm. and what we hear as liberal politics is something else. Mm -hmm. And liberal politics is, is really an extension of the Marxian idea. Yes. And Marx himself was a Jew, and he's totally discredited <laughs> by history. But the leftists continue to espouse many of his ideas. Actually, um, I, I was talking to Dr. Eubner earlier about this, but um, so people say that the conservatives only care about you if you're either like unborn or religious, unless um, unless you're like uh, if you're unborn or religious. I would say that the liberals only care about you if you're disenfranchised and a person of color. You know, so well, like of course. you know, so, so it's really like I guess you know. You know, I'm born and I'm a woman who is a lesbian. Yes. No, I'm not a lesbian. No, I mean the. the, the uh, <laughs> yeah. no. If you're not a lesbian, no one cares about me. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to swallow between the cracks. I'm so sorry. I just like to share one more thing. I have a friend. Her name is Elsa. Um, she was a professor at uh, Concordia. And she had to stop teaching because she said her students were totally unable to think for themselves. Yeah. That, you know, this relativistic mm -hmm. idea that, that is taught throughout the secular system was Relativist, so not relativistic, relativism. Relativism was so pronounced that nobody could actually think for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a part of it too. I have a friend who's a famous blogger who says the the opposite of, universe, of diversity is university. <laughs> because that's what's, the, what, that's what's happened. Because now, universalism. So yeah. we don't see all the viewpoints now at the universities anymore. We don't. We, don't. Well, we need academies instead of universities. Yeah. Universities yeah, exactly. are hubs for bureaucracy. An academy would be an open forum open for forum. intellectual so I have no problem with people espousing their, you know, their pro-Palestinian, but they should allow the other side to also Exactly. Get their side, and exactly. they should both be able to and debate be in, a, in a calm, free. That's not what happens anymore. Yeah, let me tell you, that's not what happens. If you speak up at one of these meetings, they shut shut you down. If you're not, Doctor Norman, they treat me. They try first. They try and discredit me. They try to tell me, oh, you have no idea what you're talking about, because like you know. You are you didn't serve in the IDF. You didn't do X, Y, Z. You're not a real Israeli. You're not this. You know, you're just whatever. Then they would just tell me that I'm stupid, ignorant, and naive. So they just make me feel like I'm the most naive little princess, this naive little white privileged princess. Jewish. <laughs> yeah. No, not like like they like they really, I don't know if you're Jewish somehow or not, my my cis hetero white privilege somehow managed to get into this debate. <laughs> I don't know how, but it does. How can we make you oppressed? <laughs> well, I mean, I belong to several groups. Jordan, I mean, but like, no, I don't mean to make light of it. I fully understand that. Um, but um, but I if think you say that you're it, oppressed all the time, yeah. it, 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 you end up failing. Yeah. You know? 
no, don't be oppressed. No. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. no, I think it would be very interesting for uh, for you, you know, to um, to show your various constituencies and communities that you might belong to that there are some ambiguities and contradictions um, yeah. in the world, and that you can be one and the other, and that because what you're dealing with is a form of fundamentalism at the feminist. Um, you know, which is the directly opposite to what they're trying to do. Uh, actually, at the um, at the debates, so you know, there's like a big debate on Facebook now because there's the resolution on Wednesday, and so some person was like, "Oh my God, the way the Israelis, they, they're so racist against the Ethiopians, like it's terrible, it needs to be condemned as well." No, 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 this isn't just about Palestine. They don't know. They don't know that they yeah, saved the whole like, Ethiopian. No, they're, they're like, the government did. The populace was not. No, they're, they're basically like, "Oh, like it's um, you know, it's um, it's not just." Palestine, it's Israel, it's just a horrible country in general, and like this, why is he? And so this Ethiopian, is this Ethiopian is this, this Ethiopian Jew comes on and is like, "Hi guys, I'm an Ethiopian Jew. I'm not oppressed. Shut up." <laughs> you know, like, well, I mean, in a much nicer, exactly and more, more eloquent, you know, like very well thought out response. And so. I, I find white liberals are only too e eager to put themselves in the, to defend because I happen to be gay. I have I'm brown, and there you know people are always saying, "Oh, are you oppressed?" No, I've never been oppressed. I'm fine. <laughs> well, we, have, we have to admit that the flash is that there were mistakes. Yes, but, but there, there, there were mistakes for everything. Of course, of course, but we have, but by bringing them to the fore, that's that's how we do the rehabilitation. That's how we improve ourselves. But if you spend your whole life saying you're oppressed, you're going to end up nowhere. And the race man is, is always a prisoner of his own chains. Yes, exactly. So you have to release yourself. <laughs> yes. And some, some of the other nice folks who are here haven't had a chance to speak oh. to you. Do you want to say hi or do you want to tell us a little bit about your um, uh, studies or experiences with any of this? And, um, and anyone else want to? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you wanted to. I'm always curious to hear about when I go to visit, you know, what, what's going on on other campuses. Um, and um, so, you know, it's always very interesting to hear. Well, I want to just bring another question. Sure. I, started, I started asking, you know, if our position on Andrew's hypothesis is such, how do we evaluate others? How do we evaluate, uh, how do we do Gadamer yeah, how, how do we address those? Do yeah. we completely abolish all of their, what I would say, uh, commendable yes. uh, thoughts and, yeah. and, and contributions to, to society just because they had this feeling mm -hmm. that prevented them from accepting reality? They probably knew in their heart, which I'm sure Judas Barton yeah. knows very well, that her positions are, are, are not synchronized with, with the yes. rest of her, her philosophy. Yes. It's probably akin to her, her lesbianism. It's probably taking that type of, uh, that type of aesthetic, that type of uh, feminist doctrine, and taking it to the extreme. She's probably trying to associate uh, maybe some Simone de Beauvoir's uh, views with the Palestinians and actually feminize them right. in order to find some sort of commonality. That's where she's probably coming from. 
But do, do we change? She's favoring her lesbianism against her own gender. I think so. I, I, I see that. That's not what I'm It's really interesting. You're like, uh, you have so to tear yourself apart. A lot of Jews have a tradition of being on the left. And they, uh, some of the Jews have chosen being a leftist more than being Jewish. Yes. And exactly. I think that's happened, and I think he's right with what he just yeah. said. But yeah. lesbian doesn't necessarily mean left. You can have gay people on the right, and you people on the left. That's true. We have gay Republican guys as the important <laughs> yeah, word. I mean, like, I mean, also, like, lesbians are accepted in Israel and nowhere else in the Middle East. So, like, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's, it's really but, for lesbianism in question. Yeah, that's fine, it's but, you know, who started queer stories in Israeli apartheid was in, in Toronto somewhere. That's, I mean, that's a really interesting question, is like, what happens when you have someone whose uh, research or work you would otherwise like, but that they hold, you know, vile views? And in fact, it's happening tonight at the Metropolitan Opera, you know? Yeah. Do we listen to this beautiful music? Absolutely, that's what I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's art, and art has the potential to express anything. Whether or not you do agree or disagree is not important. You, as the viewer, as the interpreter, have to impose your own uh, interpretation of, of the expression. That's the communication between the artist and the viewer. Even if it offends you terribly. Well, you, have to, you have to accept offense because life, every day, we find things offensive. It's, it's why impossible does to. Why pass? Pardon? Why do you have to agree? Well, I don't also agree with Israel had a policy of not playing Wagner. That's absolutely true. It's interesting. Why does art get a free pass? As long as you aestheticize it and call it art, then. Um, you know, maybe we can tolerate it more than than what than academic uh, yeah, or other forms of representation. Some art gets away with that. As long as intellectually honest, and art art is completely subjective. But as long as intellectually honest, exactly. in other words, the individuals not try to uh, to how do you say betray betray perceptions by imposing an overhanging aesthetic, then I think it's acceptable. For example, if someone feels, and, and, and there are there are many depictions, uh, I, I can't remember the names of the artists, who depict uh, Holocaust scenes in, in their artwork. It's perfectly acceptable and can be interpreted many different ways, uh, so long as it doesn't corrupt perception, then, then that's, that's completely acceptable. And Wagner doesn't. He does not send any particular anti-Semitic uh, viewpoint in his operas. He might have written uh, a treaty which, you know, I question whether it was anti-Semitic. Certainly, it was against Jewish culture no, and its imposition in Germany. Be yeah. careful. You have distinguished between Cosima and Eva as well as Richard Wagner. They're not the same. Richard Wagner had many Jewish friends. He hired many Jews. He, he was well integrated with Jews, even Meyerberg supported him, and Meyerberg was offended actually when he broke his treaties that, that said that the Jewish contributions to Jewish culture were degenerate. But he was not against the people. He was against the, he was, he was really a German supremacist more than, a, than an anti-Jew or an anti-Semite. So you have to be careful. It's true that his views were exploited by the Nazis, by his, by his son-in-law, who was incidentally not German, but English. Um, but we have to appreciate his art in its own right. And we also have to be careful to understand when individuals are used as icons for certain causes, 
maybe it's better to take a deeper look at who they are and what they what they really believe. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I disagree, though. Well, I disagree because I, I think that, you know, I don't know, for some reason when it comes to... I don't know, Holocaust, or I don't know, people sort of, there's a little bit of confusion. For example, you know, would, would it be acceptable to have an opera, the Metropolitan Opera, it's, it's um, on, let's say, the glorification of the beheading of James Foley. Is that art? There's a, an opera called yeah, The Dance of the Carmelites, where at the last scene, each Carmelite is beheaded. But the thing is, you when you're, but, but if you're going to, yeah. if you're Sound. going to, um, I, I think you have to be, I think you have to take into account cultural sensitivities. And I think that, you know, to have an opera that celebrates terrorism against Americans, and this opera is being funded by these Americans, I think it's, I think that there's a point where it's just gone wrong. It's gone off the rails. Yeah. Boris de Sandra was made into an opera too. It's uh, you know, so, like, so so people can have intellectual discussions, but at the end of the day, you know, when you have an opera that is glorifying um, something evil, you know, something very bad, I think I think what happens is you the society becomes a little bit confused and distorted. Be careful, you're, you're starting to encroach on liberal thinking here, because one, one world's freedom fighters are the other world's terrorists. And That's if we're not, not true. That's not true. It's always No, no, true. Because, because in the West we have certain values. We have certain values, the values of liberty, the values, I mean, we have a constitution, and people who live here have abide by a social contract. So if you're not going to abide by a social contract of liberty and justice for all, where equal rights of citizenship, where there are gay rights, where people are, are equal, then then you you know that's your you know that's your right. But 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 to take the what I'm offended by is that you know it's one thing to have you know an opera glorifying terrorism on some street corner with some guy that decides to you know do a one man show, but it's another thing to take the most prestigious cultural institution in the United States, and to have that normalize exactly. anti-Semitism. <coughs> I think Ezra Zilka still he signed off on that one. Uh, I, I think he didn't pull his sponsorship thing off. Ezra Zilka. Ezra Zilka, he's uh, a Jew of Oriental extraction. Well, 90% of the Med supporters are Jewish. Yes, I, I, believe, I believe he did not pull yeah. And he's a very prominent. But, but one more thing, I, I have to caution you that just because someone does not share the worldview of the society that he lives in, does not mean that he should be culturally excluded. After all, the whole idea of equality means that we encompass and embrace everyone if they have a different worldview. No, and but we don't encompass and we don't embrace terrorism. We don't. We don't embrace terrorism. We don't embrace beheadings. We don't. It, it's a reality. But, it's we, happened, we, but we don't. But we don't make an opera about it. But we, but, 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 but we do some. We do some things. Man, right? man by nature also does vile things. What, regardless of his nationality, the United States did some terrible things in Central America. We we remember that. 
And supposedly that was a culture, a society that did not embrace those values, but they did it anyhow, which is worse. It's worse to be a hypocrite pandering the values of democracy than to be a terrorist who is actually embracing those values and doing it. So we have to be careful here. If we want to be inclusive, we accept all values, uh, all values, no, all no, perspectives. No, no. We don't accept all We don't accept the acts. We can't accept the acts. You don't tolerate tolerance. I mean, and I think put it on the plate. The viewpoint, then there's no me. discussion. The backdrop of this is the the elephant in the room is anti-Semitism itself. Racism in general, human it's hatred. It's not racism, it's anti-Semitism. You look like you disagree. I beg your pardon? No, not, I, I didn't re react to what you no. just said. It's too complicated that I can really The issue of anti-Semitism. But your declaration of faith certainly made me react that this continent or the US is a land or Canada for that matter is land of liberty and justice. I mean this country in this country maybe twenty percent have access to the justice system. You cannot have justice Less in a system right. where maybe eighty percent are excluded to have access to the justice Very good. system. But it's still Very an good. ideal. It's still, it is it's not the idea. There are many mechanisms in that idea which yes, make that the people are I come from a country where you could buy a judge. The only thing I'm trying to say is you threw in a fiction of such magnitude uh, translating your total unawareness of what North America is all about, what the world is all about. What's the I, 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 I try to be polite. I don't want to say Australia and, and Canada and are countries that oppress their own the over the Aboriginal population. Well, What's you see, I mean, how can I? I mean, you are un so un totally unaware of your unawareness. Where shall I start? Are you saying? Are you saying? Where shall I start? Well, I'd like to know. How much access to justice do Saudi Arabians have? How much access to justice? You would be surprised that in non-modern societies, whichever these societies are, there's something called communal or religious justice, access to which usually does not take economic means. Okay, It's not based on economics. This is Which? in very small societies. In, in, in very smaller societies. Yes, international societies. In Africa, Muslim societies, Jewish societies, Animus, animist societies. and in Africa, mm -hmm. in most of Africa. Uh, so, sorry. I mean, so, some of the penalties no, in those societies. It is very important because by, by positing what you positing, you then went further, and from there, you somehow implicitly drew conclusions and judged others. Exactly. But but in, other words, the in other words, there was a self-righteousness. Well, implicit. I'm not saying that I, there's I'm saying not... it because it's, it's well, hardly fine. to what many people react to, which you would probably then call Anti-Semitism. 
among other things. Excuse me. Yes. There, there is an issue there. Okay. I, I don't think I would call that anti-Semitism. I think anti-Semitism, I call anti-Semitism uh, an unconscious or conscious hostility to Jews and Israel. That's what I call anti-Semitism. But I think there's a distinction also between reality, what the what there there's a rule of law, let's say, and then do people live up to that rule of law? Do people to live up to the ideals on which this country is founded? No, they don't. On that, I agree with you a thousand percent. There's a lot of injustice. A lot of people don't have access to the justice system. A lot of people don't have access to what they're supposed to according to the law. I'm not disagreeing with you. We have, we have to but, but you can't, but you cannot equate, I just want to finish my sentence. You cannot equate a society that is built on democratic principles and freedom with a, with a society that enslaves women as a rule of law, or yeah. and, and, and doesn't... Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's a very freedom. big distinction. Freedom basically okay. means, freedom means, and boils down to, in actuality and ultimately, certainly in the West, to, I'm not responsible uh, for you. Wait, guys, I have a question. I'm not responsible for my okay. next um, That's, not that's true. all my important stuff. Wait, and let me say we have like another five minutes. Okay. So okay. we can also wrap up. I'm going to respond so, directly to oh, that point so. very quickly. I would argue that everyone has some sort of unconscious hostilities towards some individuals, some stereotypes. <laughs> it's unavoidable. It's actually the precept of self actualization. And if we're not able to admit this to ourselves, then we no, we don't stand a chance of fighting our natural tendencies. And that, that's what makes this whole concept that we are of the greatest power because we, we identify anti-Semitism. Well, unfortunately, this human hatred exists in all of us. There is some ethnicity or some social status or some behavior that everyone finds uh, undesirable, and we act on that. So if, we're, if we don't admit that to ourselves, uh, excuse me, excuse please, me, excuse me. Uh, you know, of course, I'm a social worker and psychologist by profession. Yes. So now you. So I do understand it of the unconscious, but I also am a student of history, and I know what anti-Semitism is. And anti-Semitism has been an organized and dogmatic. Um, uh, ideology against Jews, an ideology that says Jews are all in power, they're trying to take over the government, lies, systematic lies, that's what I call anti-Semitism, and a large part of the left is also imbued with systematic lies. But don't we also possess these same types of, some, many of us, have the same attitudes towards Arabs? So we don't act on it. We don't go out and kill Arabs. We're, we're hard we up don't on the kill us. We don't go out and kill Arabs. Okay. 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 Everybody, everybody, can I just say something? Can I just ask a question? So where does free speech end? And total? Do, should we? Wait, so, so democratic societies are, are built on the concept of tolerance and equality, right? But where do we draw the line between being an oxymoron, aka tolerating intolerance? You know what I mean? So like, tolerating intolerance is an oxymoron. So where do we draw that line? And I think that the death of Klinghoffer kind of crosses that line. You know, in, the, in, in tolerating intolerance. That's what we're doing if we tolerate it. Doesn't and I invite you all to continue this conversation at the next
Uh, November 7th, November 3rd, 3rd. Okay. Tammy Rossman Benjamin will be speaking. Ah. So we condemn the freedom parties and Spanish Civil War, too. Yeah. I can't believe it. What's November 3rd? All right. Thank you. 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 But there's language. It's only to apply to yourself. You have to impose. You have to impose right upon yourself.